Thank you very much, Tim, and uh, good morning, everyone. Good morning, everyone here in person. This is great. Uh, along with Tim, I want to wish all the fathers uh, happy Father's Day, and uh, I'd like to do it with a, a little more uh, soberness. I want to pray for uh, not just all the, the dads, but all the, the men of the church. That's kind of our custom here at Tri-City Church, is to uh, Mother's Day, pray for all the ladies, Father's Day, pray for all the men. And so I'm going to actually ask, uh, our custom is for the ladies to stand. Uh, we do this sort of in honor of, of the men in our lives, uh, men who are fathers, have been fathers, want to be spiritual fathers perhaps. Uh, we want to pray for all the guys uh, in our church, and so I'd invite you, even if you're at home, you can stand up in honor of any, any guy that happens to be there with you, and uh, I'd invite you to pray with me. Lord God, we do pray for the men of our church. Uh, God, we're so thankful for the way in which you have uh, organized uh, human civilization, that there would be families, that there would be dads. Uh, Lord, we know that the sad truth of our fallen world is that uh, our dads uh, have not always been who they should have been. Lord, for many of us, this is a difficult day. Uh, maybe because we are a dad who feels like we haven't done everything we should or we've had a dad in that way. But the truth also is, Lord, that you are a heavenly father. And so I pray that you would bring comfort and encouragement uh, to those men who are dads right now. I pray you'd bring great wisdom Lord, help them to lead their families uh, in the way that they should so that they would, they would recognize you as their father, their heavenly father. And God, I pray you'd bring comfort to those that are hurting. We are so grateful for the way in which you're using the men of our church. I pray, God, that would continue. And I pray, Lord, that there would be lasting impacts throughout all the generations because of the men you've brought here. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much. You can have a seat. Uh, as you probably know, uh, we are in the book of Luke, and we're going to continue on in the book of Luke. Uh, today we are in Luke chapter 9, verses 28 uh, to 36, and uh, we're going to be looking at the transfiguration of Jesus. So uh, as, you're, as you're turning there, uh, I'd invite you to, to consider something that happened in the Glezos household um, about, well, a few weeks ago. Uh, probably like many of you with young kids, we've been doing homeschooling uh, at home, which means we've been doing all the subjects, including science. And so one of the things uh, that we did was to hatch butterflies. I don't know if you know this, but you can order butterflies, like mail order. Well, they come as caterpillars in this little, little plastic cup. And uh, they come, and you are supposed to tend to them, and then take the little cocoons and put them in the screen box. Uh, we mostly forgot about them. They were kind of like a jar on the counter and then realized all of a sudden that there's cocoons. And so we were surprised. And uh, so we put the cocoons into this net sort of box thing and then forgot about them again. Uh, we were supposed to spritz them with water and keep them moist. We forgot to do all that. So we thought that uh, we had uh, sadly killed our, our potential butterflies. But then one day I was up working in my uh, office and I heard screaming and, and butterflies and I came downstairs and in fact, uh, they were opening up. And there's this beautiful orange butterfly. Uh, in fact, four of them. We just had one a casualty. It was amazing. I mean, even, uh, even though it's something that we know happens all the time, uh, it's still really amazing to see this, this metamorphosis from this you know, caterpillar into this beautiful butterfly. Uh, it's amazing because it's, it's the same creature, but they look totally different. Uh, it's amazing because it goes from something that is very plain looking, very mundane, to something beautiful. I think if caterpillars hatched into slugs, we wouldn't be excited about it, but they're butterflies. It's very, very beautiful. And that got me thinking, of course, about this, this passage. If you've read this passage before, you know that the transfiguration of Christ is about a moment where Jesus goes through this dramatic change. 
And even more, kind of to, to press the point of connection, the Greek word uh, to be transfigured is the Greek word metamorphon. Metamorphosis, that's really what's being described here. He is dramatically transformed from this kind of uh, mundane uh, flesh, human flesh, into this beautiful divine reality. And really this is a moment of um, not just beauty, not just magnificence, but also great insight. The whole point is that the disciples at the time, and we today, would know Jesus more. That we would have a a better sense of who he is as God in human flesh. The divine, transcendent, glorious God come down in human form because we get a peek uh, behind the curtain of his flesh. So, that is uh, what we're going to look at. I want to begin by reading uh, Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 28, and then we're going to ask some questions and work our way through the text to find the meaning here for us. So here's God's word to us this morning, beginning in verse 28. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. So that's God's word to us this morning, a magnificent text and really a unique moment. Uh, We can see the uniqueness of it because of everything that transpired, but it's also, of course, a very purposeful moment. Uh, The point here is that Jesus brought James, Peter, and John up to this mountain for a particular purpose. He wanted to give them a picture of himself one that would be carried on as they were to fulfill the the later plan after his crucifixion and resurrection and kind of start the church. He was equipping them as leaders of the church and by extension equipping us because we get a a picture of this vision as well. So as I said, we're going to ask some questions today. I have five questions to help us kind of work through the text with some answers and then end with one final point of application Uh, Because while this is kind of a glorious scene, there's some questions that come up. Uh, Here's the first one, the kind of obvious one. What exactly happened to Jesus, and what does it mean? Let's look again at verse 29. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. Uh, You'll notice in this, in our text, the word transfigured is not there. Uh, That word pops up in Matthew and Mark. Luke uses the word altered. Uh, which essentially means the same thing. It means that he was changed dramatically, and he was. Uh, His whole body began to glow. His clothes became dazzling white. Uh, Matthew, in his gospel, says that Jesus' face shone like the sun. Mark says his clothes were intensely white, like no one on earth uh, could bleach them. It it was an overwhelming experience of brilliant, blinding light. In fact, uh, Matthew just says that Jesus' clothes, they became... Uh, like light. It was as if just light was pouring out of him, which, which you have to imagine for those disciples would have been incredibly overwhelming. I mean, it, it sounds overwhelming already, but for us, I mean, we have points of comparison that would be sort of similar. 
right? We can imagine floodlights, we can imagine fireworks, we can imagine movies with kind of brilliant uh, effects. For, for the disciples, they didn't have that. I mean, I'm not sure about what you imagined, but what came to my mind uh, is this show I saw a number of years ago. It was like a Cirque du Soleil kind of show called the Slava Snow Show. It was like this Russian clowning show. And one of the climactic scenes was this, this figure walking into a snowstorm and they had this bank of lights behind the back curtain and these uh, huge fans. And all of a sudden, all these confetti snow fell and these fans kicked on and it was like looking into just this, the sun. And that, that's what I think of. You probably think of something similar in, in a movie somewhere. For the disciples... Apart from the sun, they had candles, they had lanterns. All of their points of comparison would be very, very dim light. And now they have this just epic, blinding light pouring out of Jesus himself. It would have blown their minds. But not just because of what they saw, it would have blown their minds because of what it meant. See, if you remember, just about a week earlier, Jesus had been asking the disciples about himself. And he said to them, who do you say that I am? And Peter voiced kind of the growing opinion of the group, which was, he said, he confessed, you are the Christ, which, which would have blown their minds at the time because what it meant was that this carpenter from Nazareth was actually the God of the universe, come down in human form, living amongst them. Well, now that mind-blowing truth was being depicted visually, where they were seeing, kind of peeling back the curtain of his, of his humanity to, to see Jesus in his divine glory. That's what this scene is about. The divinity of Jesus was revealed in that moment. They knew it in a sense. They, they conceived of it, but now they saw it. They saw what it meant to have the God of the universe here in human form and how that worked. They saw kind of two simultaneous realities of the physical world and the spiritual world being embodied in one figure. It was amazing. It was amazing. It communicated more clearly who Jesus was and... And I think it revealed something about themselves, which is that as the divinity of Jesus was revealed, the imperfections of the disciples and of us are exposed. Because if you really consider what that white light represented, it wasn't, it wasn't just like, you know, the fad at the time in heaven that everyone's wearing white. It wasn't just like before Labor Day. It was, it was that the whiteness, the, the brightness represented spotless moral perfection. In fact, that's always how, always how we see Jesus represented. Uh, when he comes in glory in Revelation, he's wearing white. The throne of God, when there's pictures of that, it's dazzling light. It's blinding because all of those places and Jesus himself is morally perfect, sinless, spotless. And it should, I think, then uh, make us think about ourselves, about whether we are also spotless and pure in that way. See, a lot of the time, I think we, um, we tend to compare ourselves against the people around us. Uh, we, we look at the, the dim lights of others and, and how they live their lives, and then we look at our lives and we think to ourselves, well, we're, you know, we're doing not bad. Or maybe we look at everyone else and we think, man, I, man I'm horrible. I'm horrible compared to that person. Or I'm better than that person. We, we prefer to compare with each other. But here we, we have the true point of comparison. We have the spotless perfection of Jesus. And when we see him in his beautiful, pure white, we realize that in our sin, we are, we're tarnished, that we're not perfect. This is helpful for us, 
Even though on, on the one hand, you might think, well, it sure makes me feel not great about myself. The good thing about it is that we come to realize that through the cross of Jesus, this is where he's going, he's not there yet, but there will be a way for that sin, for all of those spots to be taken away, that our moral perfection will be achieved by him on the cross, that he paid all the penalty for our sin, wiped our slate clean, and the plan of God is that for all those who have faith in Jesus, even though in that moment he sees us as pure, we will then begin to experience the purity, experience the, the growth in our character. It's a process the Bible calls sanctification. And it's interesting because when it talks about this, this growth that God does in us, he starts something in us, brings us to faith, and then grows us slowly to turn away from what is wrong, to, to pursue that which is holy and pure, um, the Bible tells us that it's actually happening to make us more and more like Jesus, like this vision we have of him. So let me read to you 2 Corinthians 3.18. It says, And we all, so those who believe in Jesus, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. See, the more that we can truly behold Jesus as this pure, spotless figure of moral perfection, the more that we can appreciate what God is doing in us, what his plans for us are to transform us into that. And hopefully it makes us question whether we are actually satisfied with our level of purity right now. Like whether we're satisfied just being better than that person or, or that group over there, whether we really have a heart for holiness and purity like Jesus has. So that's, that's the first thing that we see. We see Jesus revealed in divine glory. We have it reflected on us and hopefully are motivated to pursue greater moral perfection by his power, by his grace. But secondly, second question, why do Moses and Elijah show up? Look at verses 30 and 31. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now there's a few things going on here. For one thing, it really does uh, affirm or confirm the idea of the afterlife. Like these guys have been dead for a long time and here they are talking, interacting uh, in glory with Jesus. That should be encouraging to us. But really the question we, I think, want to know is why them? Like why Moses and Elijah? Uh, if you, you know, there's a lot of other great um, characters from the Old Testament, Daniel, David, Isaiah. Why not some of these other guys? Well, the answer is that Moses and Elijah, they show the continuity, the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. If you're ever wondering, is it like two different stories? No, it's, it's one big story. Moses is synonymous with the law of God, the Ten Commandments etched in stone. Elijah was the prophet, the prototypical prophet, the one everyone thinks of when you think of as a prophet. And their presence there is kind of like a photo op. It's like when a politician right, is running for office and they kind of have a photo op with someone endorsing them. It's kind of like that. Moses and Elijah, everyone's like, oh, okay. So it's like it's one thing. The Old Testament leads to Jesus. This is great. In fact, Jesus says this to his disciples later. Uh, Luke 22, 44 to 45, he says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So here what we see is a picture of this overarching truth that everything from the Old Testament was leading to Jesus. And you see that also because Moses and Elijah, what do they want to talk about? 
They could have talked about all sorts of things. They want to know about the departure of Jesus. Now that word, that word uh, is the Greek word exodus. So you have Moses who led the first exodus. God's people were in slavery to Pharaoh, led them to free them physically from slavery, talking to Jesus who is, is going to lead the second exodus, leading his people from slavery to sin. It's a beautiful picture of the, the big picture of what God is doing throughout human history. Now, the disciples, they couldn't picture this all at the time and put it together because the cross hadn't happened yet. But for us looking back, we can see that this is what God has always been about. People have been in slavery to sin, making poor choices because of poor character, because of something that's broken and corrupt within us, and yet God's plan was always to free us from that by sending Jesus to pay the penalty for our sin and to free us from bondage to sin. So that's why Moses and Elijah, to show the connection and to reemphasize the theme of God's redemption. Third question, what is up with Peter? Don't you wonder that? Peter, come on, Peter. Can you not just keep your mouth shut for a little bit? Why do you always stick your foot in it? Here's what he says. Verse 33, and as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. I love that line. Because the Spirit of God is making sure that everyone notices that Peter tends to speak without thinking. He doesn't even really know what he's saying. He's just talking. That's what Peter does, which is why we love him. But even though it's a foolish statement, we can actually still learn something from what, what he's saying here. Because... You, know, you have to wonder, Peter, why, why do you want to make camp up here on a mountain? And it seems clear that Peter wants to make this experience last. Peter's instinct, right? He wakes up, he's kind of groggy. There's this blinding light from Jesus. He's already like, what is going on? He somehow knows it's Moses and Elijah. They're about to leave. His instinct is, no, 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 I, I want this to keep going. I want to stay here. Gesundheit to the baby in the audience. So the question is, why does, he, why does he want to stay? And the answer, because he shows us the wonderful reality of being in the presence of Jesus. It shows us very clearly that, that his instinct, just, just being there with Jesus, I don't want this to end. I mean, when you see Jesus, when you read about him in his ministry, people always want to be around him. His teaching, his miracles. But it's even more compelling to be in the presence of the glorified Jesus. This is, this is for us a little glimpse of the relational reality of heaven. Because that's what it's going to be like in heaven. We are going to be in the presence of the glorified Jesus. We are going to want to be there. We are going to be excited, exhilarated for being there. We're not going to want it to end and it won't have to end. Just as Moses and Elijah and the disciples were there communing with Christ, enjoying just the beauty and the wonder of being there in his presence, that will continue for all of eternity. But of course, it wasn't time for that yet. That, that was the problem with what Peter said. The point was not to go up the mountain and stay there. The point was to go up the mountain, give the disciples an image, an encouraging picture, a reminder of who Jesus is, revealing perhaps for the first time, emphasizing for them who he was, but then to come back down the mountain and to complete the plan of God. See, Jesus knew that he knew the path he was leading his disciples on would be a very difficult one. He knew that there would be many opportunities to be discouraged. Uh, there would be hurt. There would be trial. There'd be 
all sorts of suffering that they are going to be called to, this, this was meant to encourage them, to give them something to hang on to, to give us something to hang on to so that we would be reminded of who we're actually following. Not just a man, but the God of the universe. Come in human flesh for our salvation. So that's what's up with Peter. Peter is the everyman who always speaks the thing that we maybe are thinking but wouldn't actually say. Uh, fourth question now. Fourth question is, what is the significance of this cloud? You notice in verse 34, as he, as Peter was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Now, this is hard for us to appreciate, like, what's the big deal about a cloud? Um, but this was not just any cloud. This cloud, uh, Matthew says that it was a bright cloud. See, every Jewish person back then, and, and probably today, would have known what this cloud meant. Because this cloud was there a number of times, in fact, all throughout the Old Testament. And this bright cloud of glory, it was always a symbol of God's presence. That's what it meant. The cloud was the symbol of God's presence to encourage his people. So if you, if you go back to the Old Testament, you'll see it first appear in the time of the Exodus, when God's people are fleeing Pharaoh and the army's coming and this pillar of fire and cloud kind of comes down and separates them from Pharaoh's army and they can escape. Then the same uh, cloud of fire leads God's people through the wilderness for 40 years, pillar of cloud during the day, fire at night. There's a cloud that descends on the newly finished tabernacle. It's this tent that God uh, had his people built so he could come and dwell among them. And then again, during the, the temple, once it was built, this cloud of glory came down. Solomon is praying, dedicating it to the Lord. The cloud is a symbol of God's presence, which means it brings a sense of awe and wonder and fear, but also of comfort. Because God's people knew that when they saw that cloud, God was with them, that they weren't alone. The sad thing is that that cloud had been gone for a long time. 600 years earlier, uh, the cloud of God's presence had lifted up from the temple because of the people's idolatry. Instead of worshiping him, they'd worship all other statues and stones and figures. And so Ezekiel is given this vision of the cloud lifting up. Here's Ezekiel 10, 18. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim, and the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out. Ezekiel watches as this, this cloud of glory, this bright glowing cloud lifts up into heaven and no one saw it since. Even though the temple was rebuilt twice, even though God's people turned from their idolatry in many different ways, no one had seen a cloud like this until this moment. And so the meaning of this cloud's presence would have been very, very clear to everyone who heard this story. It meant that the powerful and comforting presence of God had returned among his people, but it did not just manifest itself in a cloud, it was also in a person. That Jesus was the glory of God. Jesus was the presence of God amongst his people. It would have been incredibly powerful and also incredibly comforting that the people then who heard this story would have known Jesus is the manifestation of God. He is God here among us. More than just a cloud, though, we get a voice speaking from the cloud. And so the, the question I want to ask about what God says is this. Uh, que question number five, why does God repeat himself? Now, you might think to yourself, he, 
there's only one thing that was said, which is true, but it's very similar to something else that God had said. So here are the two things. Uh, here's our, from our passage today, uh, verse 35. A voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. But that's very similar to what God said at the baptism of Jesus. Matthew 3.17, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. I think it's significant that the only two times when God speaks audibly, like when you hear a voice from the sky, he basically says the same sort of thing. Which may not seem like a big deal. I mean, what he's saying is the truth. This is his son. But what I was thinking of is, think of all the things that God didn't say. Or that God could have said. Just think of how many questions have been asked of God since the beginning of time. For all of humanity, think of the millions and millions of questions that people have been asking. Uh, curious questions, right? Like, God, if, if you made the world in six days, why does everything look so old? God, what's up with the platypus? Why did you make that thing? It's incredible, but why? God, what about mosquitoes? Did, in the Garden of Eden, were they there? Did they hurt or they, did they feel tickly? Like, what, what is, how did it change? Curious questions, but also big picture questions, right? Like, God, man, why, why is there evil? Why did you put that tree in the garden? Why didn't you just make a reality where there was no tree and people could not sin? Why did you, why did you do it that way? God, what about free will? How, how does that work? How is it that we make real choices that we are responsible for and yet you're sovereign over everything? How, what's the connection there? We have big questions for God. We have personal questions for God. God, why is this happening to me? God, after everything I've gone through, why, why is this happening again? Why this diagnosis? Why this failed relationship? Lord, Lord, why aren't you taking care of me like you said you would? Why, God, when we look around at our world, is there so much difficulty and, and trial and injustice? God, we have a lot of questions. It's significant then, I think, that God hears all of those questions and then he says one thing and he says it twice. It's as if he's saying to us, I know you have a lot of questions. I hear your questions. I love you deeply, but listen to me. I have one answer for you. One answer for all of your questions, and his name is Jesus. He is the answer you need. For every question that you are asking, he is my son. You must listen to him. He brings you all of the wisdom and insight and love that you are looking for. There's one answer. For all of humanity. Now, Christianity can get a bit of a bad rap for this being true about us. By that I mean, like we joke sometimes that in Sunday school, you know, if you just answer Jesus, you'll get every question right, right? That's whatever the question is, the answer is Jesus. Just say it, doesn't matter what it is. There's this sense sometimes that, G that Christianity is very, very simplistic. But listen, there's a difference between being simplistic and, and being simple. There's a difference between being narrow-minded and being straightforward. See, it, it's like God knew that we would hear what he said the first time and that we would take it in. Oh yeah, this is Jesus, your son. But then we would say, but I, I have all these other questions, God. If you could answer these ones, then I would be really satisfied. And God repeats himself to say, look, everything that I need to say and everything that you need to hear is being said right here in the person of Jesus. He's my son. He is equal to me in glory equal in power, equal in wisdom, and yet he came to earth to save you from yourselves. 
He's the word of God. You need to listen to him. And that brings us to our one point of application, which is the question, are you listening to Jesus? I think this is a necessary question because uh, for the human race, listening is not really our strong suit. You know what I mean? I mean, even with each other. Like listening, actually hearing each other is not really our forte. If you can think of probably any relationship you've been in, there's probably been a time when you have not or someone else has not done a great job of, of hearing the other person. I think for Don and I in our marriage, I can think of a, a number of times where we've been having a disagreement or misunderstanding and I would say something like, well, Don, why didn't you just say that? And Don would say, I, I did say it. In fact, I've said it a number of times. And a light bulb would go on and I would think, oh, oh yeah, she has been saying it. And I've heard it, but I haven't really heard it. I haven't allowed it to sink into my heart. There's a difference, right? There's a difference between, between kind of hearing and hearing. It makes me think of this guy uh, that, I, that I got to know on the North Shore when we were living there and doing ministry there. His name was Sean. And uh, we had sort of gotten to know each other for a few weeks. And at one point he told me, he said, you know, I actually um, I have pretty significant hearing loss in both of my ears. Like 30% of my hearing is, is gone. And I remember at the time looking over and I was like, but, you're not wearing a hearing aid. And he said, no. He said, I just kind of like to get the world a bit muffled, he said. <laughs> he said, I kind of like just all the edge taking off all the noise, which, which I could kind of get. Sean was a pretty chill guy, and I could see him liking that buffer. But I know from talking to his wife, there's times when she really wanted to get Sean's attention, and uh, he didn't hear her. And uh, it strikes me that that's kind, of, that's kind of like us sometimes. I mean, there's a reason why uh, there's a phrase in the Bible that's repeated. Jesus says it a number of times. He says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Meaning, like, we have ears. We can hear, but are we really hearing? Are we really taking to heart what Jesus is saying? Because very often we are not. Very often we don't. We hear, but we don't actually hear. Like, for example, we may be reading the Bible, right? So it's, it's the primary way to hear from God but we may almost unconsciously avoid certain verses, certain areas that we aren't really keen to have God speak into our lives. We're going we're gonna to read over those quickly. We're going to hear them. We're going to read them, but not really allow it to, to settle in our hearts and our minds, not, not allow conviction to come. We often hear calls to repentance, but our pride, our, our hardness of heart, means that we hear it like a whisper. Right? It's, it's easy to ignore. We sometimes hear, say, a call to forgiveness. But the bitterness in our heart dulls the message so that we go on holding that grudge. Like, like my buddy Sean, it, it kind of feels good in the moment to have the edge taken off the word of God, right? To have kind of a, a muffle or, or a, a buffer there. But the truth is that it's incredibly damaging. It's destructive, it hinders our growth spiritually. It hinders our relationship because it just allows sin to fester and to grow. Instead of heeding the call of God, instead of seeing our sin most clearly and turning from it and, and coming to Jesus for forgiveness, we ignore it. We allow it to grow in the darkness. And the effects of it are felt by the people around us. Our relationship with God doesn't grow. Our relationships with people suffer because we aren't really hearing. But you know, there's something else that I don't know if we often think about. 
See, if our hearts are hard and our ears are dull to the word of God, it's not just words of rebuke that we don't hear. It's also words of encouragement. There's many times that we're struggling in life and we're needing a word from God and yet we've, we've heard it in a sense, but we haven't let it sink into our heart because we're used to the, to the buffer. The hardness of our heart is preventing the real truths of who we are in Christ to sink in and bring life and hope and healing. Like just as an example, I want to read to you uh, a passage from Romans chapter 8. It's, it's not going to be on the screen. I just want you to just listen to what God is saying. Listen to what the Word of God is saying to those of us who know Jesus. Those of us who are walking in faith. Here's what it says. This is uh, chapter 8, 31 to 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, famine, nakedness, danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is God's word to us. This is what he is speaking to each one who knows the Lord. So let me ask you a question. If you've heard that, why are you still struggling with fear? Why do we struggle with anxiety? Why do we find it difficult to think that we are worth anything or that God is for us? Why do we consider our circumstances and think to ourselves, God must have abandoned me? God must not be near me. And why do we worry if anyone is, is bringing our cause to the Lord? Jesus says here, he's interceding for us. He's for us. He loves us. All of that is the word of God for us in times of trial and difficulty. We need to hear it. But it's difficult. It's difficult because there's a lot of other noise in our world. There's a lot of other voices. In fact, sometimes the most damaging voice is our own, repeating back the things that we've heard people say to us, speaking our, our, our worst fears again and again. And instead of, of grabbing the word of God and, and reminding ourselves of the truth, we tend to believe the lies of the enemy of our own, our own doubts. See, what God is telling us is that he sent Jesus to bring us the answers we need. And that as Jesus is revealed in glory, it's, it's a reaffirmation. He is not just some other spiritual teacher, some advisor, some human counselor. He is God himself coming to speak the truths of God to us, to lift us up out of our own sin. And in fact, to glorify us. That's his plan. You might wonder... How will I know if I'm actually listening to Jesus, if I'm actually hearing the word of God? 
And it's fairly simple. You'll know if you're listening because your life will be changing. You'll be able to look back and you'll see the way that God is working in your life. There'll be areas of sin that you didn't care much about, things that you're doing, yet now you're feeling unsettled about it. That's a good sign. God is speaking to you. God is, God is leading you to repentance so you can turn from that, which will be difficult in the moment, and you'd rather cover your ears, but as you hear and you respond, things will change for the better. If your life is changing, if you feel yourself being drawn near to Jesus, you're listening. God is opening your eyes and your heart to believe and to respond. And what you will find is that there is confession of sin. There are moments of difficulty. And also, you may go down roads that seem more dangerous than you would normally go down, more perilous, and yet you have a comfort and a hope in the midst of it that you didn't have before this. That is the hope and the peace and the joy that God brings. And it only comes when we listen to Jesus when we recognize him as our Savior and our Lord. So my encouragement to you as a church, as everyone who's gathered here, tuning in at home, is that we would listen to Jesus, that we would recognize if there is one voice that we need to heed, that we need to fill our minds and our hearts with, it's him, it's this word to us. Because while it does bring difficult words that will require us to change, it always ends in greater hope and greater peace. So I'm gonna end by praying that for us that we would respond, that we would hear, and that we would be changed. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we are thankful that, that you did come. Thankful, Jesus, that you were obedient to the Father, came to earth, lived a perfect life in our place, and then went to the cross to die a death that you didn't deserve, but we did. God, I pray for everyone who's listening. Lord, if they don't yet have faith, I pray you would move in their hearts, I pray you would bring them to the point of realizing that, that what they really need is not of this earth, but it's you, Jesus. They need faith in you to trust that as you were raised to new life, they also will be raised to new life. And as you were morally perfect and pure, we can be that way as well, by your grace and by your power. And I pray, Lord, for those of us that, that are struggling to walk this road of faith, would you encourage us with that picture of your divine glory and with the certainty that as we listen to you, as we hear your spirit, your word, we will be changed. We will be made perfect by your grace. And I pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.